Feast of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Hello and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones here discussing issues related to worship, theology, and culture. And uh, today I am going to be talking about a sort of theological um, matter, a theological topic, and that is the issue of hermeneutics. Uh, what I want to give you today is sort of a, a primer on literary genre in the Bible. I think uh, interpreting the Bible through the lens of literary genre is crucial to understanding the text that you are reading. And so um, I'm going to give you a broad overview today. So biblical hermeneutics are attached uh, to a wide array of external factors such as one's traditional upbringing, uh, previous instruction, personal contexts, for example, family, work, school, and perhaps more than the rest, literary genre. Many Christians seem to make the mistake of interpreting biblical texts without proper understanding of the literary genre that they're reading. So such this understanding, though, of, of literary genre is imperative to correct interpretation. You cannot read the metaphors of poetry, for example, as literal history. And there's some debate as to what is what. For example, the account in Genesis of the creation. I believe that is a literal account, but there are those that would say that that is poetry. I do not believe it. It doesn't fit the rest of the poetry genre in the Bible. So why in the world would it be unique poetry? Uh, it doesn't fit the form or, the, or anything like that. And so uh, various genres exist in the canon of scripture. And what I'm going to do here is examine the major genres of the Bible in an overarching manner and ultimately um, a call um, call believers to excellence in biblical interpretation. So let's get through it. There's quite a few I'm going to go through. The first one is the narrative genre, or sometimes synonymously known as the history genre. In other words, a narrative offers a text within the framework of a historical account. Um, I believe that is a lot of the Pentateuch and the creation story, for example, I believe is a narrative genre. Narrative is probably the most employed genre in biblical writing, and it's certainly more prevalent in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. It could be suggested that the entirety of the Bible is framed within the narrative genre because the text of Scripture from beginning to end presents a narrative, the story of God and his work in the lives of his people. Uh, narratives often yield a point or a plurality of points to be acquired by the reader. Uh, the Gospels, for example, give accounts of the life of Christ from the author's various perspectives, and yet they hold the same trajectory and aim in teaching. Now, gospel writings might be considered narrative, but they also hold their own unique genre called gospel, which I will discuss a little bit later. Um, but, for example, the account, the account of Jesus feeding the multitude varies in all four of the Gospels. Some are shorter, some are longer, some give more details, and that's because they're coming from these authors' perspectives. 
Nonetheless, the truth that Jesus provides for his people and performs spectacular miracles is evident in all four accounts. And so narrative should be considered the support of biblical revelation. Said another way, the narrative genre provides substance to the mysterious workings of God throughout Scripture. Because of the factual and historical accounts of God's work throughout human history, through narrative, even skeptics can be assured that the holy text of the Bible is accurate and reliable. So narrative lays the foundation uh, for what, what God does through his miracles in Scripture. So because narrative does not take liberties in the use of metaphor, when you read narratives, you need to interpret the text through the lens of precision. In other words, narrative is intended to be taken literally. With the account of Moses' parting of the Red Sea, for example, in Exodus 14, some people make the mistake of approaching the text as hyperbole or metaphor, but the account is factual history and should be taken literally. God literally parted the waters of the Red Sea. And while it's miraculous in nature, the aim of the story is not to be stretched into a mere metaphor, but is to provide a historical account of the reality of God's miracle and work in the lives of his people. In this instance, he is working in the lives of his people, the children of Israel, the Hebrews. He is working in their lives to provide for them, to protect them, and to redeem them. So narrative needs to be interpreted not as a figure of speech, but as literal and historical accounts. So moving on, the next genre I want to talk, talk about is wisdom. Uh, wisdom is a biblical literary genre found uniquely in the Old Testament. And while Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs are traditionally considered the wisdom texts of the Bible, uh, some of the Psalms and the writings within the Song of Solomon enjoy the same category. Wisdom texts in the Bible are devoted to divine morality and right choices, which are only derived from obedience to God. So wisdom literature points the reader uh, to a sometimes difficult but right decision and often a blessing for heeding its call. In this genre, wisdom is sometimes personified and it grants a call to its hearers. And so the purpose of, of wisdom literature is to present the blessing of making godly choices and heeding the call of God to obey him. It's not like narrative because wisdom literature does not provide historical prose, but it, it offers a variety of scenarios and choices and consequences attached to them. So much of the guidance offered in wisdom literature stems from the personal experiences of the authors. For example, Ecclesiastes is traditionally thought to have been authored by Solomon himself. And so many of the experiences listed in the book are likely his own. And in this case, Solomon pre pre presents a sound reason behind his own experience to which readers may or may not relate, but should observe as godly truth. And while it took a lifetime of experiences for Solomon to gain understanding in the areas about which he writes, the wisdom of the text allows believers to avoid learning those truths in such a difficult way, like he did. And so to, to properly interpret wisdom liter literature, readers need to be mindful of the broad scope. The wisdom genre may not give explicit commands, but instead propose to the reader the benefit of godly choices in a plurality of circumstances. Many people make the mistake of reading a, a wisdom or let's say a proverb, for example, and saying, well, that if you don't do this, that is sin. And that is not necessarily the case. 
However, it is wise to heed that call. And so interpretation in wisdom literature should be gained in a broad way. In other words, the interpreter should not make uh, the mistake, should not mistake single portions of wisdom literature for specific directions for individual believers, but rather as a broad recommendation based on the author's experience. So moving on to the next genre, biblical literary genre, is poetry. Uh, Poetry holds the purpose of praise, of worship, and often liturgy and prayer. The Psalms, for example, might be considered the hymnal of Israel. Uh, The New Testament, in fact, references the Psalms as usage in liturgical and worship settings. In Ephesians 5.19, the Apostle Paul discusses this to um, encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, Biblical books in the category of poetry would be Psalms, uh, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Now, while Lamentations takes a disparate approach in the usage of poetry than Psalms and Song of Solomon, it is poetry often in the form of prayer. Uh, Poetry, nevertheless, can be found in other biblical books. The Magnificat, for example, in Luke 1, 46-55, is a form of poetry set within the bounds of Luke's gospel. Uh, This is the song of Mary when she uh, um, rejoices because she is pregnant with Christ. And so poetry employs metaphor to paint a picture in its aim. Uh, For example, lament, praise, prayer, whatever the case may be, poetry um, paints a meta, it uses metaphor to paint this picture. And so to, to properly interpret poetry, we need to consider the aspect of metaphor significantly. David, in Psalm 18.2, for example, compares God to a rock. Uh, the reader should not take such a comparison liter- literally because it's a metaphor. God is David's spiritual rock. He is not a literal rock, but he is David's spiritual rock and fortress. Uh, Solomon compares his love's neck to the Tower of David in Song of Solomon 4-5. Now, you would be a fool to think that his love's neck is the Tower of David. This is not literal. This is metaphor, and such a comparison uh, is a figure of speech. And so we need to look beyond the metaphor itself to the point the author desires to make. Rather than taking poetry literally, we need to interpret uh, poetry and approach the text from a broad perspective with a specific use. Uh, Whether the poetry is intended for lament, praise, or prayer, uh, whatever the case may be, poetry conveys an intentional use of language and often expands literal truth to a hyperbolic picture to achieve a specific aim. Uh, Moving on, the next genre, prophecy. Biblical prophecy has the purpose of giving a specific message to a specific people during a specific era. Uh, The prophet is a messenger from God, preaching a message and giving people the opportunity to repent. Nonetheless, New Testament and Old Testament prophecy should be distinguished by the interpreter. So it's helpful to examine New Testament prophecies next to Old Testament prophecies. Uh, In other words, looking back to determine what has been fulfilled. As an example, Isaiah vividly describes the Messiah who would save his people from their sin in Isaiah 53. And New Testament writings reveal the fulfilling of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. Paul discusses prophets in the New Testament. So it is a New Testament spiritual gift. There are those that think that uh, gifts such as prophecy and tongues have uh, ceased. I am not necessarily one of those. 
Um, so if, if you do believe that these gifts still exist, you need to distinguish and understand that there is a difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament church era prophecy. And it would be incorrect to consider prophetic writings as merely foretelling the future. That's what a lot of people think that a prophecy is. It's telling the future. Uh, but prophecies present a message from God. That's what it is. A prophecy is a message from God through a messenger. And although it's intended for a specific group of people in a specific era, it is relevant to God's people throughout history. And so a common theme in prophetic writings is the message of repentance. God often in prophets, in the prophecy books, uh, gives people a choice to, re to repent or to face the consequences of disobedience. Uh, for example, the day of the Lord. You often hear that phrase in the prophets, in the books, uh, the day of the Lord is coming. And most Old Testament prophecies were preached to God's people, Israel or Judah. Nevertheless, in the Old Testament prophecies, um, there are other groups of people. Jonah, for example, was called to proclaim a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. After first disobeying God, he reluctantly went to Nineveh and preached. And the people of Nineveh repented, causing God to relent in his destruction of them. And so um, Jonah's message should be interpreted as the extension of God's words to the people of Israel, and yet one that is broadly relevant to all people, including us today. Prophecies should additionally be interpreted with the realization that God's final revelation to his people has already been given through the canon of Scripture. That's to say that no further revelation exists. So anybody that holds the gift of prophecy today, if you believe that, what they are doing is merely resounding the already existing word of God. And so there, any word classified as prophecy in the current era should be a mere proclamation of what has already been presented in the Bible. While the New Testament and the Old Testament prophecies are disparate in nature, the two are similar in that they testify to Jesus Christ and his work among the people. So moving on to the next uh, genre, gospels and parables. And um, the gospel genre consists of firsthand accounts of the life of Christ during his ministry on earth. Um, the reason I've included parables in this portion is parables are stalwartly connected to the gospel literature, so the two genres are approached here together. So um, there are four gospel writings in the Bible, uh, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, there are people who would say that there are other go uh, gospels that are extra biblical. For example, the gospel of Thomas. Um, and, and yes, writings have been found in history that might be attributed to someone else, uh, but in a nutshell, they did not make the final canon of Scripture, and I agree with that choice. Uh, John is the most unique in literary form, and the other three Gospels are known as the Synoptic, the synoptic Gospels. Um, they are very similar in nature, um, in, their, in their form. John is the most unique. And uh, I don't want to get in too deep into how this came about. There are various theories. Um, John kind of exists on its own. Um, but one of the theories is called the two source theory. And that is that um, the material in uh, uh, Matthew and Luke, well, Mark is the foundational material. So Mark wrote, you know, his gospel and then much of the material um, in Matthew and Luke came from Mark's gospel. By the way, um, 
No one knows 100% with 100% accuracy who wrote the Gospels. Yes, we've attributed them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, John probably is more likely, but uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at least, nobody knows for sure. Uh, the authors never give their names. Um, so uh, Mark is the foundational gospel, and this theory says that uh, much of the material in Matthew and Luke came from Mark. And so, um, and then there is material um, that is uh, unique to both Matthew and Luke. Uh, and then there is material that is unique to each of those individual ones. And so this is called the two source theory. So you got Mark and then you have somehow material that is in both Matthew and Luke. And um, uh, this came from what's called the Q source. Uh, scholars have labeled it the Q source. And then material that is unique to Matthew is known as the M source. <laughs> Very uh, creative, right? And then material that is unique to Luke, known as the L source. Um, so anyway, there that's one of the theories. Um, but the gospel material, the gospel is a unique literary form. Uh, so you have the synoptic gospels and you have John. And accounts within the three synoptic gospels are often similar and sometimes verbatim. Uh, hence the connection between the three. And the purpose of gospel literature is to declare the earthly life of Jesus Christ, his work, his miracles, his miraculous birth, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. And so, in interpreting gospel texts, uh, we need to be aware of the audience to whom Jesus speaks and the type of speech he gives. Uh, for example, Jesus commonly speaks in parables, which are not necessarily true stories, although they certainly could occur. Um, parables, nonetheless, are stories Jesus uses to provide a lesson to his audience. Parables usually contain some aspect about the kingdom of God, and, and interpreters need to be careful to examine parables as fictitious stories which offer a lesson rather than historical accounts. Additionally, gospel texts present, uh, point the reader directly to the central focus of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the prophets testify to Christ. Biblical historical literature points to the Messiah who would redeem the people of God. And throughout the Old Testament exists types of the one who would come in Jesus Christ. So the gospel message itself, not gospels, the genre, but the gospel message itself and the entire Bible revolve around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, therefore, boldly and vividly tell of who Jesus is from firsthand accounts. So moving on, the next genre is epistles. Epistles uh, claim a far more theological tone than do the other biblical genres. Working knowledge of languages, setting, and background are crucial to properly interpreting epistles. Uh, most of the, the New Testament books are epistles, and so examining the New Testament in its entirety should involve the realization of theological premises. Unique to the epistles is the fact that despite specific instruction for specific groups of people, uh, for example, the church at Corinth, the theological truth epistles possess reach broadly across all of Christianity. And so epistles are penned uh, often as letters to churches or people and should be interpreted with this in mind. Um, epistles are specific in that they are often uh, written in response to a specific circumstance 
and expect a response from that audience to that circumstance. Most epistle writings come from Paul, but there are other epistle letters as well. Epistles support the overarching focus of the Bible, the person and work of Jesus Christ. But epistles address difficult theological topics and concepts. Much of the content, in fact, of epistle texts has been debated by theologians for centuries and still does not have a broad resolution to the diversity of thought and opinion, which is why the interpretation of of epistles demands attention to details such as audience, context, background, and language. So, uh, moving on to the final genre I want to discuss here is apocalyptic. Uh, The genre of apocalyptic writing is perhaps one of the most misunderstood genres in the Bible. Where prophecy declares a message to a group of people with the intention of repentance, apocalyptic literature proclaims future events, okay? So where people think that, that prophecy proclaims future events, it doesn't necessarily do that, but apocalyptic literature does, and often in the context of end times. Most apocalyptic literature was composed during the latter days of the Old Testament, in the intertestamental period, and at the end of the New Testament. And some Old Testament prophetic literature includes elements of apocalypse. For example, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, and Daniel. And most people seem to think primarily of Revelation regarding apocalyptic writing. Revelation certainly stands as uniquely apocalyptic in nature, but Revelation is not the only apocalyptic book. The latter prophets often speak of eschatological events. So a common thread running through apocalyptic literature is symbolism. And when we're reading apocalyptic literature, we need to be careful not to elevate symbolism in a literal sense, uh, but we need to instead determine the meaning behind the symbolism. And we, we need to realize that apocalyptic writers often saw visions occurring in the future and wrote with the best description possible given their own limited knowledge in their era of time. And so apocalyptic literature is contextual in two ways. Number one, the text was composed thousands of years before future events uh, described. And uh, number two, the best description of future events possible is blurred and hazy at best. Keep in mind, these are uh, men writing these texts from thousands of years ago. They're looking into the future. They have no clue what they're seeing, but they're describing it as best as possible. And so lest we consider the apocalyptic genre to be mere entertaining stories, you know, we, we've uh, almost created an entire industry about of it, uh, about apocalyptic literature with uh, the Left Behind series and so on and so forth. The genre itself should be understood to have the purpose of declaring what is to come upon the return of Christ. And for, so for God's people, apocalyptic messages to be hopeful. Uh, and for those who do not know Christ, it should be suggestive of a warning and a call to repentance before it's too late. So finally, I think all of this, this, this discussion of literary genre, should offer all of us a call For precise hermeneutics, everyone has a hermeneutic, whether from personal context, past instructors, or background and tradition. And those external factors that impact our hermeneutic may change over a span of time, but there does not exist an uninterpreted text, an uninterpreted lesson, or an uninterpreted commentary. So you might think you're reading someone's commentary and that it's neutral. It is not. That that does not exist. The believer's goal in hermeneutics should be to interpret the biblical text as precisely as possible by understanding the, um, the text first, 
the text first and foremost, that is the foundation there, but also the grid of external factors and literary genres through which the text is written. Whether a theologian, a pastor, or a layperson, the call to every believer in understanding the scriptures is excellence and precision in hermeneutics. And there, there is a lot more to dive into when you're talking about hermeneutics, but I really wanted to discuss a literary genre. That is something to keep in mind when we are interpreting scripture, when we're reading and trying to understand it. And so I hope this has been helpful to you. Uh, as you study scripture, as you read the Bible, as you interpret texts, let's keep in mind literary genre. Thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.